0: welcome back to open to truth a podcast all about exploring big ideas and discovering truth together my name's clint and we have a really special guest today his name's jason brennan he's a professor at georgetown university and he specializes in politics philosophy and economics Uh, he's written a number of books but today we focused on one that he wrote called against democracy Uh, kind of an inflammatory title but we get into the reasons why in the conversation we talk all about Uh, what is democracy, what are the reasons for why someone would endorse it, and then what are some alternative views for how we govern ourselves and just some other problems that we face as a a voting populace. So I really uh, enjoyed this time with Jason, and now I bring you Jason Brennan. Well, hi, Jason, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, thanks for having me.
0: Well, our listeners would have just heard in your bio that you've written a book called Against Democracy. Here it is behind us. and I could, already, I could already feel that some listeners might be on the defensive. Oh, no, my precious democracy is under attack. <laughs> I don't think they need to be. Really, I think the big idea of this book is that there are good reasons to think that other forms of government um, and civic engagement are likely to produce even better results than democracy. Is that is that about right? Is that the thesis? Anything you'd want to add on to that?
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. In fact... Um... It one originally the book wasn't going to be called against democracy, it was going to be called against politics. And about mm. a week before it went to press, my editor said, if we call it against democracy, more people read it, but they'll read it unsympathetically. If we call it against politics, and you make the main claim that politics makes us mean and dumb, people read it very sympathetically, but fewer will, what do you want wow. to do? And we debated, And we said, let's go for the money. So we took the uh, book cover that would make people <laughs> <Sure>. angry. Uh, <laughs> and it, it sort of worked. But I I like to think of myself as not only a fan of democracy, but democracy's truest fan, because I think I'm the only person who likes it exactly as much as it deserves to be liked. Ah, I tend to think of democracy the way I think of, like, say... uh, you know, let's say ACDC since, uh, you know, you're Australian. Um, like I think they're a great band, but they're not perfect. Not all of their albums are good. Some of their stuff is, is imperfect and there are things that could be better about them and democracy. It's the best we've done so far, you know, perhaps the same way that ACDC is the best hard rock band we've had so far, but, uh, but it's not perfect. And there are things we might be able to do better.
0: So I wonder if we could just dive in here to the specifics. Um, So if we could better appreciate like what what is uh, not sufficient with democracy or what are ways that it lacks that you would even want to seek an alternative? Like, I don't know, depending on who you are, you might think things are going relatively well for me. It it seems like things are improving along the course of history in a lot of uh, great ways. Maybe some areas are backsliding, but uh, what are the goods that democracy actually delivers and in what ways is it kind of holding us back?
1: yeah so compared to say dictatorships genuine monarchies one-party states uh old-fashioned aristocracies feudal governments and most of the other things we've tried um it performs better in terms of protecting our civil liberties protecting our economic freedom promoting some degree of equality among citizens having an open tolerant society making us richer etc so in a way compared to everything else we've tried it's a winner it's not always perfect. Sometimes the issue is really about how much democracy total do we want in any particular polity, but compared to the other things we've done, it works. But nevertheless, um, I think what we've discovered over like the past 70 years is that democracy has some built-in systematic flaws. And I think the best way to illustrate that is to sort of describe what we're taught in like middle school around the world, around like Hmm. sixth grade or the equivalent and what everyone thinks democracy is about, and then finding out why that's mistaken. You know, so, like my you know my thirteen year old who's like taking classes in like u s. government right now, uh, he'll be taught something like this. The way democracy works is everybody has a sense of their own interests and the things that they care about. It doesn't have to be near their self-interest. They could care about other people, the environment, et cetera. but they care about some stuff. They then go and learn how does the world work, What makes the world tick? I discover how politics works, how the economy works, how science works, et cetera, et cetera. I learn all these things about the world. And on the basis of my values and my understanding of how the world works, I form political beliefs an ideology of sorts, like things, policies that I advocate, ideas about politics that I advocate. And then the next thing I do is I go and I look around at all the various political parties on offer, and I vote for the one that best matches my ideology. Or if I recognize that they have no chance of winning, like let's say maybe the Greens are the best match, but they're not going to win. Maybe I'll vote for like the Democrats because they're the best match that has a real chance. And I don't want to say waste my vote. Uh, then because the parties want to win, they're basically trying to come up with policy platforms that will attract a lot of voters. Politicians are trying to track what voters want. And so supposedly democracy is forcing voters to give the people what they want and what they want is based upon their interest and their understanding. Now, everybody does that. So on Election Day, when we vote, we basically force the people who want power to give us what we want. And then they we, they get power, and probably over the next four years or five years or six years, depending which country you're in, they're going to like try to implement the things they said they would. And they're worried also that if they do a bad job, we'll punish them by voting them out. If they do a good job, we'll reward them by um, voting them back in, and, you know, et cetera. So this is sort of the theory of democracy everybody is taught. And unfortunately, we have really good evidence that every step of that is wrong, except maybe the first step. Really? Um, every to... step? Yeah. Every step. Uh, I mean, and don't okay. even read my, my book provides some evidence for that, but honestly, if you want to read probably the best book that summarizes why this is mistaken, there's a really good book by the uh, political scientists, Christopher Aiken and Larry Bartels called democracy for realists. And they say, no, democracy and elections are closer to being random events than they are to being this kind of triumphant story. So basically here's what really happens. Uh, <laughs> yes. yeah, it's, it's harsh. That doesn't mean that it's, it, you know, it, it doesn't work the way we think. So it's true yeah. that people have interests and they care about things. But uh, for the most part, people don't really learn how the world works. They're spectacularly mm-hmm. ignorant about almost everything that might be relevant to politics. And we can get into that at great length later, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Uh, when it, they go to vote for a party, according to the old theory, the popular sovereignty theory, well, what happens is I look for the party that matches my ideology. But in fact, um, what we find is that the overwhelming majority of political citizens don't have anything like stable political beliefs, something like 50 percent to 60 percent. When you ask them in a poll, what do you think about something? They'll give you basically a random answer. And the reason we know that it's random is if we ask them the same question over and over again over a multi-year period, say a month apart. They'll give us different answers every time. And if we ask them why they changed their mind, they said, I never changed my mind. This is what I've always thought. Oh, no. Uh, That's really. Like the, yeah, the <laughs> a first, huge problem. Uh, <laughs> the first big studies of voter behavior, like this guy in um, Converse, this is what he was finding. The correlation between people's political beliefs over time was zero. 0. 0. 0. 0.00. That's how fine-grained it was. It gets So then you wonder, why do people vote for different parties? And the most popular answer seems to be that it's sort of a social thing. Like I'm from the New England area of... Uh, of United States, I don't live there now, but that's where I'm from. I still think of myself as a New Englander, and that means that I root for the Boston sports teams. I like the Boston Red Sox, the Boston Celtics, uh, the New England Patriots. I I thought Tom Brady was the greatest quarterback of all time of all time back in 2006, though I know everyone agrees that because it's just obvious sure. that he is. And voting, rooting for those teams lets me, lets me like fit in with people from my area, wearing Mm the t-shirts and so on makes people know I'm one of them. They can trust me and date me and do business with me. So there's a lot of social benefits from joining different team identities. And there's a good reason to think that our, for most of us, our political affiliations are like that as well. I vote for this group because that's what people like me do. And then I get social rewards for doing so. There's a really good book called uh, Neither Liberal Nor Conservative by uh, Kinder and Calmo, which traces all the evidence for this out over the past 70 years. And their estimate is that in a typical modern democracy, maybe only about 14 out of 100 people genuinely has political beliefs and holds on to them and votes accordingly. Wow. And then the final step is so when we're voting, we're not voting on the basis of ideology. We're voting to fit in with others. And the final step is do we vote the bastards out when they do a bad job? No, we, we have no memory of that. We're terrible at it. The typical voter has about six months of memory. They uh, remember only some economic things. They blame incumbents regardless of whether they're actually at fault for it. So the whole retrospective voting thing doesn't work. So that's Mm -hmm. democracy in a nutshell. It's more about identity than it is about policy. We're not voting on the basis for interests. And so it's actually kind of a puzzle why it works as well as it does.
2: Those are, man, that's fascinating to hear you lay out all those issues. So I was just telling you before we hit record that coming to this country from Australia and having no, when I landed, no set political affiliation, I, I have encountered what you're talking about, where whichever side of the political aisle you end up on seems for most people to be more of a social thing. It's something that's, that's sort of talked about as party at, at parties, which party do you belong to and, and, yeah. and whatnot. And so I have tried to resist that, joining just one side of the aisle. And as I, again, I can't vote yet, but I want to be able to. I want to make an informed choice. I do want to stand for something politically and and be one of those, what did you say? It was 14 out of a hundred that actually have a solid political yeah, 14, position. Yeah. Okay. So I'd like to be part of that 14%. And you and I, Clint, did an episode on this, on how should you vote uh, back when the elections were happening and ran into the issue of, I don't know enough about how the world works. I bring some values to the table. Like I've nobody loves poverty okay can we stop poverty and can we you know what i'm pro people you know however you want to phrase that but in terms of which economic policy is best and and how does the realm of agriculture work and like there's so much i just don't know anything about that for me to even have confidence casting a vote for somebody is is a hard point for me to get to where i feel like okay i've gathered enough knowledge here so i'm going to vote for the candidate who understands economics the way I do or whatever what hope is there
0: and in fact if I can piggyback on that (laughs) a few anecdotes from my time in graduate school I met more people in graduate school that told me I will not be voting because I don't know enough than I ever do now out in rural America (laughs) so even the people that I've met that are most informed maybe not about politics specifically just are educated rather are telling me like oh I don't know enough to vote it's Like, oh no, like, even oh, you don't know enough to vote, right? Just think oh, of man. what's happening. We so, need you. are is Tony on an island here and his misinformed or as mal informed or his <laughs> ignorance? What, yeah, what's it's the funny. stats on that?
1: It's funny that you guys say that because there's this thing called the Dunning Kruger effect, which is somewhat controversial, but you probably heard of it. And it says mm-hmm. but basically, the less you know, the less you know, uh, <laughs> the less you know it. Uh, yeah. So people who are badly informed about something or just incompetent at things in general tend to overestimate themselves. And people who are quite well informed tend to underestimate themselves. Right. I remember uh, when I first like came up with this idea about like, you know, I, I had this paper I wrote, I wrote a long time ago that argued, you know, maybe if you're really uninformed, you're not doing your country a favor by voting. You should contribute in other ways. And I remember I discussed this with... Uh, the great Australian political philosopher, Jeffrey uh, Brennan, who I'm not related to, which is always disappointing <laughs> to people who know us. Uh, and he was like, yeah, you're right. I probably shouldn't vote. And I'm like, Jeff, if anyone should vote, it's you. You're definitely <laughs> <Yeah>. like, you're <laughs> in like the top 0.0001%. But he's aware because he's so well-informed, he's aware of all this stuff that's pertinent to his decisions that he doesn't know. Whereas like, you know, your typical person, they're, they're not even aware of the facts that would be relevant to the decision. And as right. a result... You know, it's like, it's like if you're taking a final exam and you sort of like went to the first couple days of class and you sort of know what the questions are, but you know the answers. A lot of times people don't even really know what the questions are either.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what would be some of the questions that we'd wish that, I don't know, bottom 80% did know? Like what, what are some topics that would make you informed that?
1: Yeah. You know, it's always a question like what counts as political information, you know, because people say things, well, why does it have to be the stuff that, you know, a political scientist might care about? What about things like the price of a bus ticket across town or how much a gallon of milk costs? And I I totally agree that those things are relevant and people do tend to know at least those local facts about themselves. But you'd be surprised at what you might think are the most basic questions and what people don't know. So here's what the typical American does not know. They don't know who their congressperson or any of their congresspeople are, even if you give them a list with, a, like with, say, four names on it, including the list of the incumbent, they don't know who the incumbent is, which is weird because incumbents tend to win and we don't really understand why they do because Americans can't identify them. Uh, they don't <laughs> typically know who the vice president is, but they know who the president is. If we are bombing a country, they typically can't find it on a map. Uh, though, interestingly, if they can find it on a map, that usually uh, it correlates with them not wanting to bomb that country. Uh, they don't know wow. the unemployment yeah. rate within five percentage points. They don't know what uh, they can't guess in terms of absolute dollar amounts or percentage wise what the federal budget is spent on. So the typical American thinks that eight percent of the federal budget is spent on foreign aid. It's not anywhere near that. Um, they typically don't know uh, any of the laws that have been passed um, in the past few years. So, for example, in t- 2004, they did a poll where they asked people, Americans, hey, do you know anything about the Patriot Act? Now, they don't actually test to see if they know anything. They just ask them, "Do you know anything about the Patriot Act?" And only about a third of Americans uh, knew vi- the claim to know anything. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't mean they did, right? Uh, in two, the year 2000, um, there's a thing called the American National Election Studies, which is constantly polling Americans to find out what they know, including especially specifically voters. They ask Americans, uh, "Who's more conservative, uh, Clinton? Not sorry, not Clinton. Uh, uh, George Bush the second or Al Gore?" Right. And uh, a slight majority of people got that right. It was like 57%. But they asked them follow-up questions. Like They're like, I'm aware that there's this word liberal and this word conservative, and they're supposed to attach to these people. But they asked them follow-up questions like, uh, well, who's more in favor of abortion rights? Who's more in favor of environmental protection? Who's more in favor of expanding the welfare state? Who's more in favor of a militaristic foreign policy? Who cares more about civil liberties for minorities, et cetera? The words that make these, the, the things that make these words meaningful, and the overall majority of Americans did not get the answers right. Uh, in fact, you got about as many people getting them wrong as got them right, and the, and the others were just like completely random. So oh, no. they know basically nothing. Uh, they typically know who the president is. Uh, they don't know which party controls Congress after after a year after like a major election. They don't remember that anymore. They be- know basically nothing. And unfortunately, in most other countries where we have data, we have much better data about Americans than anyone else. We get similar kinds of results. Uh, Australians are ignorant. Canadians are ignorant. Uh, Austrians are ignorant. Japanese are <laughs> ignorant. Uh, Americans are ignorant. Like talking about who's more informed is a little bit like asking, like, which is the best of the F students?
2: <laughs> yeah. So that, that is so w- troubling, man. <laughs> Why is that? Why That's really troubling. What
0: What is the leading cause of that? Level of ignorance, and I'm not saying I necessarily know. A ton- I don't. I don't even. Well, this might be the Dunning-Kruger. But <laughs> but I don't consider myself extremely informed. I mean, I maybe know some basic facts, but oh, what- I would.
2: You would. You would have got me with all those questions for sure. I. I don't know yeah. much of anything. Yeah. But you. You're not even know. eligible to vote. You're off. That's the true. Yeah. That's true. That's true. No <laughs> that's one's true. asking
0: for me. For my opinion. <laughs> so what? What's causing that? Is it, a problem with our education or something more deep and
1: yeah, sociological question. you know i'm an educator I, I work at a university i teach business government relations and like political science type things and political economy and so on so what i'm about to say troubles me quite a bit education as an independent variable has a very weak effect on what people know about politics uh mm-hmm. going pew does a, a battery every few years where they ask americans uh what they know about politics and As an independent variable, going from having a high school diploma to having a bachelor's degree predicts you get about one extra question right out of 30. That's it. That's it. Education, educated (laughs) people tend to know more, but in fact, things like IQ and money and interest are what's doing the work, it's not other stuff. So here's the leading explanation. Uh, It's called rational ignorance. So as an educator, I find this out. I I have to see the same thing. I have students that come to my class, they take a test. Six months later, they've forgotten 90% of the material. You know, after people graduate from college, they forget almost everything that they've learned. Uh, you know, I was a chemistry major as an undergrad. I forgot almost all of it. I used to be mm-hmm. fluent in like Latin. I forgot almost all of it. I used to be fluent in Spanish. I hardly ever use it, so I remember just the basics. Um, I don't even remember like papers that I wrote 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. I forget them because they're not useful to me. So uh, rational ignorance claims that people tend to be informed about something only if it's useful to them or if it's interesting. Like if the, basically they tend to be informed only if the benefits of the information exceed the costs. When it comes to politics, for most of mm-hmm. us, the benefits don't exceed the costs because of the built-in defect in democracy. The thing is democracy works. It spreads power out to the masses. But what that means is that your individual vote makes very little difference. Just kind of illustrate that, imagine like you're taking a class in like say UC Berkeley. I think biology 101 is like a thousand students there. So imagine the professor says in the first day of class, uh, I'm an egalitarian, so what I'm gonna do is give you one final exam 15 weeks from now that'll be worth 100% of your grade. But because I'm an egalitarian, I'm not going to give every individual student their individual score. Rather, I'm going to average all of your scores together and you will all get exactly the same grade. And imagine people are stuck in this class and they're, you know, what you'd expect is that the average grade would end up being something like an F, not because people are stupid, not because they're bad, not because they're corrupt, but because if you study really hard, you bear all the costs and it barely affects the score. Like if the average score is going to be a 30 without you and you get a, you get a hundred on the exam, then what happens is you, you bump the average up from like a 30 to like a 30.7. Mm-hmm. So why bother studying? And if you just slack off and like watch Netflix, you get all the benefits. So mm-hmm. you would remain rationally ignorant of the information in that class because it, learning it doesn't really help your grade. Something like that happens with your vote. Uh, you as an individual have very little efficacy as a voter. The chances that your vote would say, uh, break a tie in the US presidential election are really small. It depends on what state you're living in, thanks to electoral college. But if you're living in like California, you know, on the most optimistic model that's out there in the literature, it spits out an arbitrarily low number of, like maybe like a hundred, one in a hundred, two hundred fifty trillion chance of breaking a tie. Mm-hmm. Maybe in a couple swing states, you have as high as a like I don't know, one in a three million chance. But for most of us, our chances of, of changing the election are vanishingly small. We seem to know that, even if you don't know the exact number. So we don't usually invest in political knowledge unless we find it interesting. But Mm -hmm. finding it interesting, it's not necessarily going to force you to be right about it because uh, just Mm -hmm. imagine like you're going back in time, like I transport you to medieval England, like the year 1000. Well, you better believe in like Catholicism and believe in it strongly or everyone's going to beat you up and ostracize you, right? If I transport you to say, uh, I don't know, rural Afghanistan right now, like it would be beneficial for you to believe in Islam because people will punish you for not believing it and you'll benefit from believing it. Something like that happens with a lot of political information. It's just useful for you to believe what people in your peer group believe.
0: Mm-hmm. So we don't, we're do not
1: we not in a way disciplined to know the truth and we have weird incentives to just believe stuff because other people believe it. So it's called rational ignorance. People mm. don't know much because it's not in their interest to know that stuff. I,
2: I can imagine folks who are interested but are maybe more interested in the soap opera-like drama that sometimes goes on politically, as opposed to policy and best course of action as far as economics and that sort. Some people are interested in the show of it all, the spectacle of Mm -hmm. it all. But that wouldn't equate to the kind of knowledge that would make them a useful voter. Now, I'm interested, is what you've just described there, rational ignorance, is that sort of inevitably tied to scale? I mean, we just have so many people in this country. How many are eligible to vote? Do you guys know? I don't know off the top of my head.
1: Yeah, it's like about 210 million.
2: 210 million. So, if, if the problem is that, or at least part of the problem is, I am one of 210 million people who might vote, my vote means very little and my incentive therefore to become educated on it is very low, how is that problem solved in a nation of this scale, mm. this size?
1: Yeah, yeah, you're right. In a way, you, if you're going to just have a mass election, you can't solve it. If we were to do what Australia does and have compulsory voting, it would in a way exacerbate the problem because yeah. uh, your vote would count for even less. Um, and in fact, studies about uh, compulsory voting find generally, there's one study that says the opposite, but generally speaking, they find that um, compulsory voting reduces political knowledge, but not by much. Okay. Uh, so what you would expect is that having a relatively small polity means your vote counts for more. There's a higher chance that you'll break a tie and people invest more knowledge. And you do see evidence of that with, say, having democracy scale down to a local level. People mm-hmm. tend to be much better informed when they're voting on local politics. If you think about, say, uh, the Swiss system where, you know, in the national level referenda, hardly anyone participates. They might get like 20 to 40% turnout, but then for like the local referenda, uh, they have high participation. That's where it's very easy to get the information and your vote counts for so much more. It's more worthwhile to use it in like an instrumentally rational fashion. Mm -hmm. So uh, with some people, I have a friend named Alex Guerrero at Rutgers University. And one thing that he advocates is something called litocracy. His idea is like, the point of democracy is to have everyone be equal but that doesn't mean everyone has to vote every single time. And we want it to be representative. But again, that doesn't mean everyone has to vote. So what he says is like, how about what we do is have like citizen legislatures. We will randomly select, say, 500 people because we randomly select them. There's no pernicious influence of money or race or sexiness or whatever other stuff that like corrupts politics. And they'll be, you know, statistically speaking, quite representative of the country as a whole. And we empower that group to make decisions about some small range of issues uh, for, say, a few years. Like, you 500 people, you've been selected to be the ones that will decide trade policy. And you're going to have to deliberate and learn from experts and do other things. But, you know, now you have at least some stake in it because it's kind of like being a juror in a jury trial. Like, your opinion now really matters and you better take it seriously and you probably would. So he's he's advocating uh, that as a sort of alternative to just straight electoral democracy because, I mean, you know, the incentives are perverse and we can't really fix the incentives very easily.
0: If you wouldn't mind uh, just canvassing the three categories that in your book you described, uh, the I think just eligible voting citizens or maybe all citizens fall into one of these three camps, the hobbit, the hooligan, and the vulcan. And how that relates to what you were just talking about. I found that helpful when I was reading it.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, so it's a useful way. There's so much variety in what how voters behave and like what they think, like including things like what they know, how they gather information, how they process information, how they react to people with whom they disagree, how they react to new information, how strong their opinions are. There's all this variety. But luckily, you can come up with a pretty good summary and say that almost everyone is either a hobbit or a hooligan. And a Vulcan's almost like an ideal category that doesn't really exist. What I mean by a Hobbit, if you've if you've seen the Lord of the Rings films or read the novels, they're just people that have kind of this genteel British lifestyle. They want to smoke their pipes and eat breakfast and second breakfast and elevensies and a snack. Um, there's a cosmic battle between the forces of good and evil going on. But for the most part, the Hobbits are not interested in that. So when you look at the uh, the typical citizen in a modern democracy who has the right to vote but chooses not to, there's a lot of variety, but the typical one who chooses the right to one chooses not to, they're a political hobbit. They know basically nothing about politics. They have very few opinions. Um, whatever opinions they have are not very stable. They typically don't have anything like a coherent ideology, and they're just not very interested in politics. All right, so hobbits. And mm-hmm. I have kind of a warm spot in my heart for hobbits. Like I tend to be, even though I'm something of an elitist about politics, I'm sort of a populist about civic virtue. And I think you know, I'm like, you know, the average, um, I think the average motorcycle mechanic is doing a lot more for the country by fixing motorcycles than I ever do by voting. So I'm, mm-hmm. I have a lot to say for Hobbits. Then there's hooligans. So here I think about soccer slash football fans and other countries where those sports actually matter. You know, uh, like I, I was in a, uh, I went to a soccer game one t- time in uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and like they had to separate the fans from either side of the either team away from each other. They couldn't yeah, it mix. gets wild. They put up metal barricades. Uh, they had cops. You had to basically walk what? like two kilometers know. around to get from one side of the stadium to the other because all the barricades they put up to prevent fighting. And I had to wear like the color gray so no one could tell what fan, I, what team I was supporting, so I couldn't get wouldn't get into a fight. It was nuts. <laughs> that so, <but> in <laughs> itself might be.
2: <laughs> that's how oh, I feel having landed in America.
1: That, someone walking be, around
0: in gray. <laughs> I could <guess laughs> see someone getting all. mad that you're wearing gray. Like,
1: pick a
2: side. Man. Yeah, pick a side, dude.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. And we do do that with politics. We're like, you know, your silence equals complicity. Like people say things like if you're not voting for uh, Trump, then you're voting for, um, you know, you're voting for Biden. If you're not voting for Biden, you're voting for Trump. If you don't vote and I'm like, wow, it turns out if I vote third party, I get three votes or something. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So then if you go to hooligans, they typically are better informed about their team. They can remember facts about the team from the past. It might be able to tell you like things like that. But they're also super biased in how they process information. Um, They always interpret that information in a way that flatters what they'd like to believe. So in sports, like a red card is called against your team. You're like, that's unfair. The referee's like probably been bought off or he's like cheating. If it's called against the other team, you're like, of course, that was a good call. Or like when Tom Brady is accused of deflating footballs, I and everyone else from New England's like, that's bullshit. He didn't he didn't do anything. (laughs) And everyone else in the rest of the country is like, of course, he did it. But it's not like we have access to any different information. We just believe what we want to believe. So. When you look at the typical citizen who's active in politics, what you find is they're a hooligan like that. They're better informed, though not very well informed. They have somewhat more stable beliefs, though it's much more common for it to be whatever the party is saying today, I just say that I agree with it, then I vote for the party because I agree with them. That's much more common for me to follow the leader than to pick the leader because I like them. Mm. Uh, and plus, uh, but they're, they process information in a super biased way. You give them information that disconfirms their views. They say the person who came up with it's corrupt. They don't pay attention to it. They laugh it off. They ignore it. They actively seek out information that confirms what they'd like to believe. They look for news sources that agree with them. They don't want to be friends with or live near or work with people with whom they disagree. Mm-hmm. There's massive amounts of political segregation. They start They start like branding everything. So, oh, I can't go eat at uh, Bob Evans, the restaurant chain, because that's a Republican restaurant chain where Republicans mm-hmm. eat and I can't be around them. And that's sort of the other half of the country um a really good book to read on this by the way is uh it's by diana Mutz. it's called hearing the other side and uh, she asks people among others one of the studies she does is she asks people like you're a committed democrat can you explain to me why anyone would be a republican if someone answers oh that's easy because republicans are stupid and evil that predicts that that person gives lots of money to politics votes early and often and is actively involved if (laughs) on the other hand they're able to say well i'm not a republican but here's what Republicans believe. And they can give a credible account of what Republicans think and you can show it to a Republican and they go, yeah, I believe that. That predicts that that person doesn't vote and doesn't participate in politics. Oh no, So Why? politics is made up of what? <laughs> politics is made up of the true believers. It's like you never see a street preacher who's like, you got to read the Bible because it's the word of God, but you should also read the Quran because you should be open-minded and understand <laughs> other points of view. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, So that's that's what we have in democracy, hobbits and hooligans, uh, so described. Vulcans are these like ideally rational agents, and uh, it would be a misreading, and it might be my fault if some people read it this way. Maybe it should have been more clear. I'm not saying that what we need to do is identify the Vulcans and have them rule, because I don't really think there are any. Um, you know, maybe Jeff Brennan and me and a few of our friends, but there's only right. five of us, so whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, but more like democracy tends to put us into one of those two camps. So what we need to do is figure out how to get better results with politics, given the crooked timber of humanity that we have.
2: Man, that's fantastic. So,
1: so if most people
0: are too, I don't know, if, not it's not even misinformed, just ignorant, like the hobbits or the hooligans and they're just indelibly marked by these cognitive biases and they arrive maybe unreliably at actual good policy or maybe it's just almost like flipping a coin or rolling the dice. Would this problem be lessened than if, because because democracy is, democracy is saying, at least in ours, there's universal suffrage, like everyone has the right to vote, barring a few rules like age and you can't be a felon everyone could run for office for and similar rules apply there. So would the problem be lessened if you could just tighten the circle on who is allowed to vote?
1: Maybe. Uh, so that's this one of these questions. And so there's this term um, I didn't coin this term, but it's called epistocracy uh, it came from a, another philosopher, which is supposed to mean, The rule of the knowledgeable. Uh, Some people who took Greek are pissed. They think it should be epistemocracy. That's that's better. But (laughs) the guy came up with it. He said, like, I know it should be epistemocracy, but that's ugly. So I'm just going to call it epistocracy. So um, maybe something like that would be justifiable. But there's all these issues about whether democracy is good for its own sake and all this. Mm -hmm. It really takes a lot of work to get there. The thing that I think is worth experimenting with isn't really that. Uh, What I think we should do is something called um, enlightened preference voting. In the book, I had another name for it, but I realized it was a dumb name, so I've changed it. Uh, Enlightened preference voting works like this. On election day, everybody gets to vote and they all get to vote as an equal, including children. I'm also non-favorite disenfranchising uh, felons, even in our current system. I don't see a point to doing that. Um, Everyone gets to vote, your kids, your cat, it doesn't matter. But when you vote, you make it a little bit more complicated. What you do is three things. First thing you do is you tell us who you are. So we find out your demographic information, like what race you are, your gender identity, your income level, your employment status, religiosity, marriage, children, because this stuff, identity stuff, affects how people vote. The second thing we do is we find out what you want. Whatever the election is about, whether it's a referendum on like, you know, joining the European Union or leaving it or picking a president or whatever it might be, you tell us what it is you want. The third thing you do is you take a quiz of basic political information. Um, uh, so, you know, questions like what's the unemployment rate, who's your current senator, etc. Those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. This quiz doesn't determine whether your vote counts or not. It's not disqualifying your qualifying. It's, it's something more complicated, more interesting. When you have these three sets of data, who people are, what they, are, what they want, and what they know, what you're able to do is with kind of basic statistics that like lots of people could calculate your typical newspaper has someone who could verify this. You can make a statistical estimate of what would the country have voted for if it were demographically identical, but had gotten a perfect score on the quiz.
0: Mm.
1: It's a way of Um. simulating a fully informed uh, public. You can also simulate what happens if the public is completely uninformed. And by the way, This method I'm talking about, it's something that's been used by political scientists and economists for about 40 years. It's the way that we know if someone says like, oh, I've noticed that white people tend to support free trade. Is it whiteness that makes them support free trade? And we can go, that's a good question. We use this kind of method to test that. We can say, actually, it turns out there's not a relationship between them. It's something else. Uh, So we can use, this is something that we've already been doing. So we could use it to try to estimate what would we have voted for if only we were fully informed? An example of this would be take Brexit back in 2016. Now, I mean, I'll put my cards on the table. I don't think the Brexit vote was a good idea. Um, I benefited from it because one of the reasons that book got translated into so many European languages was because of Brexit. So thank you, British people. You've made me quite a bit of money and I appreciate it. Uh, But during the Brexit vote, we actually had a number of polling polling firms ask the British people questions about facts relevant to the election or to the decision, such as like, how much money goes into the EU? How much comes out? Where's investment coming from? What percent of people are European immigrants in the UK, et cetera? Both the remain and leave voters got those wrong, but the remain voters were much closer to the truth than the leave voters. If you take the data we have about who people are, what they know and what they want, and you estimate what would have happened on, on that day, had the British people been fully informed about those questions, they would have voted to remain. It's like really clear. Wow. So the, the difficulty here is it's one thing if I say, you know, if someone like Larry Bartels or Brian Kaplan or, uh, you know, Martin Gillens or someone does a study like this and they publish it in a political science journal, nothing's at stake, you know, with like what the questions are, what the categories are. But if we did this in real life, people always ask the question and they should ask this question, who gets to decide what's on that quiz about what counts as inf- information? Mm-hmm. I mean, after sure. all, people are going to try to gain that quiz in order to make it benefit their party. Which is absolutely right. Of course they will. Yeah. Politicians are corrupt. They have, they, they're self-interested. So this might sound paradoxical, but my idea is this. We actually have democracy decide what goes on the quiz. We use what my, my friend Alex Guerrero's idea, we randomly select 500 citizens and we say, we're going to pay you to spend a weekend coming up with 40 questions that you think a person should know to count as an informed citizen. They can be anything you want. It could be, what's the average price of a bus ticket across Manhattan? It could be, what's the price of milk or daycare? It could be, who is your senator? Whatever you want to be. And we just
0: run with whatever they come up with?
1: I mean, honestly, I think I just give them complete freedom. Uh, And part of the reason I'm pretty confident about that is because when you you actually ask citizens this, the surprising thing is the questions they come up with are really quite sensible. Mm. So they'll say things like, oh, an informed citizen ought to know who their congresspeople are. Now, you ask those people, who are your congresspeople? You know. (laughs) Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know who my congresspeople are, but I understand I should know that. That seems relevant, right? Yeah. They should know which party controls Congress. They should know some of the laws. They should know some facts and stuff that might be relevant. So we basically empower a panel of, say, 500 citizens to come up with a quiz, maybe like a couple weeks before the election, and then on election day, you take that quiz. And it doesn't, again, doesn't qualify you or disqualify you. It doesn't say whether you get to vote or not. It's just a thing that allows us to estimate as a whole or maybe way it's like to extract wisdom from the crowd. So mm-hmm. we can come up with like, we don't actually have the ability to like educate Americans or Australians or anyone else and make them well informed, but we can get the next best thing. We can simulate what we would have done if we had been informed. So that's, that's the basic idea. I think that's the thing we should experiment with. that has the best chance of like really working.
2: Can I ask a clarifying question? Yeah. You said we, we asked them three things. Who are you? Uh, You're going to take the quiz. And what do you want was the second one. Do you mean, do you mean that which candidate are you voting for? What policies are you voting for or larger in life? What are you hoping for out of government? What do you mean? What do you want?
1: Yeah, the, the what do you want really is just whatever we right now in any country have on your ballot. Got that's, it. Okay. That's, All right. yeah. What's
2: your selection? Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: And I'm, and I hear I'm not taking any stance on what sorts of things people should be voting for. So I'm, yep. I'm neutral right. as far as we have referenda or candidates or we vote in parties rather than very Vulcan but, of you. Yeah. yeah. But whatever that stuff is, um, don't just ask people what they want, ask them who they are and what they know. Yes. And then, then figure out, well, okay, we, it's as if we've waved a magic wand and simulated a fully informed Australia. What would they yeah. have voted for? Oh, it turns out they would have voted for this. And, nope. and maybe a good way of putting it is, you know, people often say things like, "Well, had we done that, you know, who would have won in 2016? Would it have been Clinton or Trump?" And I'm like, it's it's actually pretty much more radical than that because it, the way that parties run, the way that they campaign, the kinds of advertisements they have, the platforms they offer, um, the types of candidates that they put up for uh, office that's all dependent upon the voting system that we have. The reason mm-hmm. that we have two major parties in the United States and Germany has many, many major parties is because we have different voting systems. So had we had this system, it probably would not have been Clinton versus Trump. It would have been two higher quality candidates to begin with.
0: Mm. So Man. let's just spend some time then uh, maybe playing devil's advocate or not even devil. It's just what, what are what would someone who's a strong advocate of democracy say are the great benefits that it brings that it's it's we should be really careful about switching things up i well, one maybe we can start here one thing toward the end of your book was uh i think he's burkean conservatism hmm. edmund burke famous i think british politician writer um said that look it's really risky just to overturn or change up how you're doing an institution it's almost like an organism in a way i don't that's not his language but it evolves and adapts over time and so similar to a concern of i don't i don't want to mess with a free market let it work itself out maybe our political systems are that way and at your own peril do you do too much tinkering is could there be something here like what are there any unforeseen consequences or unintended consequences that could happen with Making that kind of shift to the simulated oracle or um how'd you put it, the enlightened
1: preference view? Yeah, I mean there's gotta be. Uh it would be surprising if there weren't. And and Burke's concern applies to almost everything that we might do. Not just anything I advocate, but anything anyone ever advocates that's a change. So he he's always and that doesn't mean he doesn't think we should ever change anything either, but but Burke's basic message he's he's writing in response to the French Revolution and saying this is supposed to fix everything. It was a big disaster, mass murder, lots of war, and a freaking emperor who tried to take over Europe. I mean, so much for democracy and fraternity. Uh, he's like, you know, what ends up happening is the French overthrow a lot of institutions which have, a ro- have functionality that they don't understand. And then when they're absent, they suddenly find out what they were useful for. And he also says basically as human beings, we're really stupid. We don't really understand how the world works. We think we do. We're prone to thinking, but we think we can just fix everything. And we don't even understand it. So he's definitely in favor of like very gradual reform. Don't just preempt, like don't just turn over everything and start, start anew. And I think he's right. And so for any kind of policy idea like this, unless we have like just, even if we have we think we have overwhelming evidence for it, I think you always have to kind of start sort of small scale and see what happens and then work your way up. So in the book I say, you know, why don't we try doing this in New Hampshire or Denmark um, and see how it works there. These are relatively stable, uncorrupt, well-working places. And if it works there, then maybe we can scale it up. If it doesn't work there, maybe we can figure out why it didn't work and try something a little different, but I'm definitely not like in favor of being like a Leninist Vanguard who comes in and overthrows the current system and just instantiates this overnight because for sure there's going to be problems that no researcher is going to foresee till they actually happen.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: How would you measure if if something like this went well? If you did run an experiment like that, what's the win condition? What's a, yes, this is better than traditional democracy. How would you even begin to measure that?
1: Yeah, and and I'm glad you asked that because sometimes people make this argument to the effect of like, well, politics is all about disagreement. Like we disagree about values. So what does it even mean to say that uh, that we're supposed to measure the quality of democracy or something yeah. like that? You know, so what I try to tend to do is think, like, what are some widely held values that seem pretty reasonable to a lot of people? Like, you know, having less crime is better than having more crime. People being richer is better than people being poor. Having less social divisiveness or more stability, uh, you know, having less measurable corruption, these kinds of things are things that are widely shared values, though, you know, there are some people that dispute them. Um, very early in the book, I try to respond to the view that like because people disagree about politics, we can't have an independent standard. And and the weird thing is some people say things like, because we can't have an independent standard, that's where we're supposed to have democracy. Like we just have to have this system to decide what we're going to do, but we can't ever judge the decisions that we make. Mm-hmm. It's a weird position because on one hand, you're being like radically subjectivist about how to judge what we do or like how to like about outcomes, but you're being radically objectivist about the method we use to generate the outcomes. Mm-hmm. But a lot of philosophers find this puzzling because they just go, all right. All right, imagine that we have whatever you consider a perfectly functional democracy. We follow the rules exactly the way you want. And then we decide, let's nuke Tuvalu I don't even, or Tuvalu. I don't even know how you say it. I've never even heard this country pronounced, but there's a small island nation state, I think called Tuvalu or Tuvalu, probably Tuvalu. Let's nuke them. It'd be absurd to say, well, we did it. We decided this democratically. There was no corruption, so let's do it. It seems mm-hmm. like you have to admit that there's a standard or, or better yet, what, people often say things like, the reason democracy is good is because it's fair. It doesn't matter what we decide, what matters is that it's equal. The one problem with that is it's really not very equal. Even even like the best functioning democracies are not very equal. Money matters, attractiveness matters. If you're have a minority position, you're always going to get outvoted, etc. If we really cared about equality, we would never have an election. What we do is do what the Greeks did and have random drawings of things. So we could do something like who's going to be president? Well, there's 225 million people that are eligible. We'll put their number names in like a random number generator. Uh, congratulations. You know, my Nana is now president of the United States and people oppose that because they go, well, that person could be an idiot and do a terrible job. And it's like, that's true. But the fact that you respond that way, the fact that you think rand because randomness is what's fair. Randomness is what's equal. The fact that people think That's not a good way of doing it because it would lead to bad outcomes shows that they don't only care about equality. They care about the quality of the decisions as well. So I think Mm -hmm. we're kind of forced to admit we have to judge things by how well they perform, even though, yeah, we disagree about what exactly counts as good performance. Yeah, that's good, man. Thanks.
0: Now, I I could see someone maybe like that doesn't have all their thoughts on democracy crystallized, but is feeling frustrated. Like, no, no, wait a minute like I, like you were saying at the beginning, I was told in eighth grade that democracy is really good and there, there's something to this. So maybe they're thinking, uh, democracy is good because it's a symbol for something like it. Communic having this style of government communicates, particularly if you do have a universal suffrage, everyone can vote. Uh, all citizens are equal or each of you have dignity. Uh, we see you, you're acknowledged, your voice counts and counts equally. Um mm-hmm. uh, and whether that's maybe that's not so good or something, but there are these values that the system itself can symbolize or showcase to a people that even might seep deep down into their psyche and, and empower them encourage them. Is there, is there something to that or is that, does that not work as a defense?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, In fact, we imbue democracy with all sorts of social meanings. And so for us, What you find in most countries is that as a group rises in status, one of the ways that the country acknowledges that that group has status is by giving them equal voting rights. And you see that even with like depriving felons of the right to vote, as we do in many states and many countries, that's kind of like the country's way of saying like, you broke our rules, so F you, you don't get to vote anymore. So we Mm -hmm. imbue voting with all this symbolic power. But I really ask, first, is it worth doing that? Now, for one, if, if the point of voting is to sort of symbolize equality, and you can make the same move I made before where you can go, yeah, but it doesn't do it very well. If you really care about equality, you should have random selection. Randomness is even more equal. So mm-hmm. if you're one of those people, again, you don't want elections, you don't want voting. What you want are lotteries and sortition. And those people will be like, but I don't want that. And it's like, aha. So again, once again, you don't only care about the symbolic value of the call and you care about the actual outcomes. But the other thing is, why do we have to instantiate equality this way? You know, so like let me give you a parallel. Um my university i think is is pretty corrupt I, I think our I think our leaders do a pretty bad job uh leading by the values that they profess to lead by yeah. i write I've been writing mm-hmm. a lot of complaints to them over the past year about some of their bad behavior, so they'll do things like they'll write like they'll put up epitaphs or statues or like things that proclaim how much they care about students, but then I'll be like, well, what about hey, informing students ahead of time about the decisions you're gonna make for next fall so they can decide whether to transfer or not, and they're like, oh, we're not gonna do that so it's like they do the symbolic stuff, but not the stuff that actually delivers the goods for the students. Mm-hmm. And similarly, um, there's a conflict. If you care about equality, you might say, well, what's more important, having equal voting rights or when there's a conflict between the having more equal outcomes? Because it's not clear that having equal voting rights will lead to equal outcomes. No, I mean, here, right. just as a, a toy mm-hmm. example, you know, imagine we have 90% white, 10% black as a population. Imagine all the white people are completely racist against all the black people, such that white people will universally agree to always thwart black interests. Now I give everybody equal voting rights. What happens? Well, yeah. democracy will lead to less equal outcomes because the, the majority are going to vote against the minority. So mm-hmm. there's there can be a conflict, like, so at least in principle, there can be a conflict between equal voting rights and equal outcomes. Though in practice, I don't think there isn't as much as I had in that toy example. But the other thing is like, you know, why not just pick, if if it's delivering bad goods, why not, if it's not working, why not just find some other way to express equality? You know, giving everyone equal liberal rights, equal freedom of speech might be a way of like symbolizing equality. Or I have this like toy example in the book where I go, imagine you lived in a, you grew up in a world where at the age of 18, the government gives you a red scarf and everyone wears their red scarf outside. And then imagine like this hardcore like fundamentalist religious group comes to power and they say we hate gay people, so we're going to remove their red scarves and when you turn 18 if you're gay you don't get a red scarf. In that world, it would make sense to go and march on the streets and demand that gay people get their red scarves. But we sitting from the outside can see we can see how they would think that, but we also recognize there's not really a deep connection between equality and the scarves. It's just a meaning that they're imposing mm-hmm. on it. In the same Mm -hmm. way that like if i stick up my middle finger it's not like that necessarily has to express contempt it just does because we've imputed meaning to it so i I think we're doing that with democracy too one of the ways we can express that everybody's equal is by giving them equal voting rights one of the ways we can express everyone's equals by giving everyone a red scarf when they turn 18. one of the ways i think a better way of expressing everyone's equal is we pick whatever political system does the best job of delivering egalitarian outcomes even if it turns out to be one that is not perfectly egalitarian on in its inputs. Mm-hmm. You know, I tend to think if you care about a value, you should care more about achieving the value than symbolizing concern for the value. Which is why, you know, I complain about my own university because they do the opposite, right?
0: Yeah. So there's also an idea that now, wait a minute. So I, I like that you honed in like the version of epistocracy you were kind of de- defending as the enlightened uh, preference, but even there, it's not it's not totally obvious that it's really my vote that counts. I get that you gathered some information, but it is markedly different for me just casting a ballot. And in the current system we have, there's this notion that by participating, I'm kind of like giving my consent Mm -hmm. to be governed. Like, uh, um, yeah, I I don't know if that's how many people think that, but that's at least an underlying, like the consent of the governed is a ideal of democracy. Yeah. Is there something like that or that my participation also maybe like gives me some autonomy? I am self-directing. I'm making my wishes known in the world and I'm checking off a box and I want this person. There, is there some value in that that we'd lose in a epistocracy?
1: Yeah, I think there's still like whatever value comes from the fact that you're participating and in, at least with the kind of enlightened preference voting system, I like you're participating as an equal. I think that's still there. But I I don't think that or democracy itself rises to something that could be called autonomy or consent um, just because of how little power people have. Mm. So I like to joke things like, you know, if if I want to know if I have autonomous control over my left arm, I do an experiment. I'm like, I'm going to will my left arm to move right now. And ah, it's moving. So that seems like I probably have autonomous control, though for the scientists that are watching, I realize N equals one and it wasn't controlled. So it's not a good experiment yet, but I've got (laughs) some preliminary evidence and now I'm going to will. Uh, let me try willing something else for politics. I hereby will that we have open borders in the United States. Anyone can move here whenever they want. That's like a, a thing that I happen to advocate. Um, my, as a result of my voting and so on, not a single immigrant has been allowed in the country for a single second longer. Right. It's like mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. And that's when the puzzle's about it. It's like, because unfortunately, it doesn't really matter how I vote, it matters how we vote but not how I vote, not the, it doesn't matter, like any of the individuals who make up the collective, their votes don't matter, but the collective as a whole matters a great deal. Mm. And that's because democracy works. It's not supposed to be that your individual vote matters. What that means is that you don't really exert much control in in a way, like you exert control over democratic outcomes, the way that I exert control over a tidal wave coming towards me, a tsunami coming towards me when I have a bucket, like it doesn't really matter, um, Mm -hmm. except in incredibly rare circumstances that almost never, like if there's a, if there's a tie. Uh, so that doesn't seem quite right. And even when it comes to consent, think about, you know, how consent normally works. So uh, I'm looking around the room for something that I've purchased here. Like I have this like Kurt Cobain, uh, Lego figure, right? <laughs> I bought this from, uh, I forget the name of the company, like hidden toy sale, I think is the name of the company that sells these things. So I'll put a shout out to them. Like I, I look at it and I go, I want that thing. I go on a website, I put in my credit card, I hit a button and it shows up later that's a consensual transaction. And by the way, the person didn't have to take my money. They didn't have to sell this. They weren't enslaved by me. That's a consensual transaction. In contrast, you know, it, ha- it had the guy who sold this came up to me and said, I have a Kurt Cobain thing. I think you want it. I'm just going to take your money and give- make you take it. That wouldn't have been consensual. That would have been <laughs> force. I mean, I like it. It's, it's super cool, but it wouldn't, it would have been force. Uh, if I'd given him the money and he didn't do his part, it wouldn't have been a consensual transaction. It would have been like fraud or something. Sure. When you think about government, it's unfortunately a little bit closer to that. Like, it doesn't matter if you say yes, they do it anyway. It doesn't matter if you say no, they do it anyway. You don't really have a reasonable way to opt out, for the most part. It's incredibly difficult for most people to even move to another country. It, unlike like choosing to go to like a different restaurant or to buy a different toy. Yeah. it's really difficult to move to another country. I was considering moving to Australia, and it was like you know I would have been allowed to, but there was like a point system, and I need three hundred oh, yeah. points. And it's a headache. And, yeah. Yeah. One of my colleagues is, you know, uh, he's a, he's a red haired white guy from Canada. Who's a native English speaker and, uh, has, um, a, an American PhD. And for him to come work at Georgetown was an incredible pain in the ass. It wasn't just something he could easily choose to do. And we're the lucky ones. Most people can't just move. So you're sort of stuck in the country you're born in for most of the time. And finally, the government doesn't even consider it having a job of having to do its part. So if you pay taxes for the police, and the police don't show up to protect you when you call them. They don't give you your taxes back.
2: Right. You can't sue. Yeah.
1: In fact, this has gone to the Supreme Court. These actual no, cases kidding. in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, there's a case in D.C. where some, a woman called the cops because she was being attacked and they never showed up. And so she sued and it went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, no, the government doesn't owe you protection in exchange for taxes. It just owes people in general protection.
0: So wow. it has none
1: of the elements really? of a typical consensual right. transaction. Uh, <laughs> and, and beyond that, we also tend to think information matters too. Like imagine you have some, like think about children. Like imagine like a kid goes up to the doctor and says, I want some medicine. And the doctor's like, here you go, pick whatever you want. He's like, I'm going to pick this medicine. And he just starts taking it and it kills him. Yeah. Did the kid really consent? He has no idea what he's doing. We we tend to think that they, you need some level of information for it to be right. a consensual transaction. Uh, and this is actually implemented in, in law when it comes to medical decisions. You're supposed to make informed decisions. They're supposed to inform you about what it is you're choosing. The doctor can't just go up to you and go, hey, you have a condition called polypropodaxis. And if you take this medicine, maybe it'll help you. You have They have to tell you why it works and what the chances are. Right. But as we talked about the ignorance stuff, most people don't have that. So democracy surely does give the people a lot more power than a dictatorship. So it's... It's more consensual than a dictatorship, but it doesn't really rise to the level of consent per se. There are all these conditions that aren't met.
2: Do you, Let me ask you this. As somebody who has obviously devoted your life to this sort of thing, do you see a, what did you call it? Enlightened preference system? Do you see that happening? What is the, what's the path for, is there hope to see reform in democracy? Maybe not revolution, maybe we want slow reform, but how do we even begin to tiptoe towards that
0: and if i can piggyback on that just in the current climate and again i i hopefully i don't portray any hooliganism in how i describe (laughs) it but um, the fact that we're bickering so vociferously over whether someone should have an id when they go to vote and that that is being castigated as Mm. this is extremely racist voter suppression how i mean after i read the book i was excited i i like you said, I, I just find it interesting as well, but now I'm like, can this ever happen? Is there any mental bandwidth for people to even take on the idea that some might not be allowed to vote? I mean, other versions of epistocracy that you outline, uh, do, do just take away restrict suffrage in a way that the enlightened preference version doesn't. So some other versions maybe are more susceptible here, but to this complaint, but just wondering, yeah, I don't, can it ever happen? Is it feasible? What does it look like? What's the first step?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, one thing, even about the voter stuff, you know, even that is one of those like ideas that people just latch onto because everyone else says it. Because if you ask like the typical Democrat who thinks that, like, oh, voter IDs, like that's so so racist as way of suppression, you're like, okay, great. Uh, what about all these other things that you think people need IDs for? Do you think it's yeah. like suppression if they don't have it there? And they don't think that <laughs> it's completely inconsistent. So all it takes is, like, some celebrity, like, you know, a good-looking celebrity to say something against it, and everyone will switch. It's like, it's not <laughs> deeply, it's not, like, deeply held, and it can't be because it contradicts everything else they think. I mean, that that thing, I just as a rant on that one topic, yeah. Yeah, and, please, and this please. is something a lot of political scientists would say, it's like, Republicans are like, there's so much voter fraud, and it's like there's some, but it gets measured all the time. And there's really not that much. It almost never makes a difference, but they just strongly believe that there is. And then Democrats are like, voter ID laws are really disenfranchising lots and lots of people, though apparently they're not hurting anyone else in all the other cases where they think they should have voter IDs. Uh, but uh, or so they should have IDs. And it's like, yeah, you're right that there are a few people that probably wouldn't vote. But again, when political scientists study that, it's like a really small effect. It's like, it's neither, neither team here is like, basing their beliefs on the evidence. And so mm-hmm. it goes. Um, but yeah, but uh, here's why I think there's some chance of this in the future. Uh, I think that people have a sense that there's something wrong with democracy. Um, you know, the year Maybe the year that came out, especially because we had Brexit and Trump and a few other things. Uh, you had like basically a clown party running Italy. Um, you had Erdogan like getting all sorts of special powers voted in through uh, in Turkey. Democracy's had a lot of crises lately around the world not just in the u.s uh people have a sense like even faith in democracy is falling. which i even though i wrote a book called against democracy scares me because people tend to be either like well no democracy the next step is authoritarianism it's one yeah. or the other uh but there's a sense of there being a crisis people are becoming kind of aware of some of these problems even though people are incredibly polarized they also really don't like polarization per mm-hmm. se the very mm-hmm. people that are causing it really in a way don't like it uh so I think that there's this thirst right now for what could be some ideas that can fix it. And that's why you're getting a kind of renaissance and democratic theory, like as we're speaking, as it's happening right now, where all sorts of books are coming out talking about how to fix this. So there's my book. Yeah. There's like Daniel Bell's book on trying to take what's good about China without having what's bad about it. Alex Alexander Guerrero, uh, he has a book coming out about using lottery systems to work better. Uh, Claudia Lopez Guerra has a, has a book out that's uh, kind of like in between my book and Guerrero's book, uh, Helen Landemore, whom I disagree with all the time. We have a book even debating each other, but she's a book about trying to like use like Wikipedia type systems to sort of get people involved in a smarter way. Hmm. These ideas sort of sink out, get out there into the ether. And what ends up happening historically is that the stuff that like scholars talk about in one decade, 20 or 30 years later, those are the things that people actually reach for and implement. So a lot mm-hmm. of the things that we think of as like Common sense policies today that are not highbrow or high level are things that were being debated decades before. So yeah. maybe 20, 30, 40 years, some of this stuff really ends up happening, but it's not going to happen like next year. Mm-hmm. Not my stuff or their stuff either. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm just wondering, <laughs> even like just really practically, c- could it just take some brave mayor of some small town that I don't even know what exact powers a mayor has, but just when he gets elected, he's like, you know what, guys? We're going to try epistocracy. You need to pass this test. And whoever passes the test, that's what's on city council. And then we make little laws for our town based on that. Like, could that happen? And then it gets replicated or is that nonsense?
1: Uh, I mean, I guess it depends on the particular constitutional laws in that place. Because some of these things, I I think the enlightened preference voting system, I think is compatible with like the US constitution. Some people even say it's technically a kind of democracy. Uh, I think excluding people that would require like a massive constitutional change. So you wouldn't see that in the U S that you maybe might see that elsewhere, but, but that said, like, I think you're right. Uh, a lot of what happens is you have a crisis. Someone tries something new. When when there's a crisis, people are open to new ideas. Mm -hmm. They try something new. If it works, other people copy it, Mm -hmm. you know, fundamentally, like why did so many countries move from, uh, monarchy to democracy it wasn't really because everyone read rousseau and thought wow these are compelling arguments let's change it was because a small number of people read rousseau and Montesquieu and others and tried it and it worked pretty well and then Mm -hmm. people were like that seems to be working over there let's do it ourselves Mm -hmm. so that's that's where it's going to come from experimentation that succeeds leads to long-term change
0: Okay. Another question I had along my journey of reading the book was a lot of focus on knowledge and becoming informed. And this is a maybe a form of knowledge, but I'm wondering, I've, I I kind of want to go a step further than epistocracy and maybe aristocracy or involving virtue. Mm. So wouldn't it be even better if our voters were morally good and uh, like desired the good and, and could kind of sift through that? Because it doesn't, doesn't auto. It's not obvious to me the connection between just knowing more factoids about politics. Certainly, the kind of baseline little test like who's your congressman mm-hmm. that doesn't indicate. I mean, I don't think mm-hmm. anything about your moral stature. I'm and and now we're kind of approaching like the philosopher king idea from Plato's Republic. Someone who, you know, is knows the good and desires the good. Yeah. Is there something to that of wanting even more out of our Select elites in this other system that are making the decisions.
1: Yeah, that's a good question, and I think especially for people who have power, you want them to have high levels of virtue because power corrupts, and you need them to resist it, and so on. Uh, I think part of the part of the way to answer the question is to think about what do you count as part of wisdom, sort of as part of virtue. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if you mm-hmm. read like ancient Greek philosophers, this is like a big debate: does virtue include knowledge? You know, so to sort of illustrate this, let's imagine a character, let's call her uh, Betty Benevolence. Uh, Betty Benevolence, the only thing she cares about is helping other people. Like she has not a selfish bone in her body. She spends every waking moment like trying to like promote the welfare of others, but she's completely and totally misinformed about what it takes to help people. So if oh, yeah. she sees that you're on fire, she'll grab some gasoline and dump it on you because she believes that that will put the fire out. If she sees that you're starving, she's like, oh, you're emaciated. Everyone knows that emaciating is, uh, that's caused by eating too much. So I'm going to take your food away from you to help you. If you're sick, if you have COVID, then she'll like, uh, I don't know. Sneeze on you. Yeah. <laughs> sneeze on you more or something, right? So she's just completely informed. Does she count as a virtuous person? Um, I mean, I, I don't know the answer, but but she's doing she a lot of her- harm. Yeah, she has. All yeah, the I want right... both. I want yeah. both of them. Yeah. yeah. So she has like the right motivations, but the wrong knowledge. So, so if you if you say both, I think that's the answer. Like most Greeks would have given, like Aristotle and Plato, it requires knowledge, and it requires um the right kind of motivations. You do the right thing for the right reason, and you feel the right way about it. That's kind of like mm-hmm. Aristotle's uh, yeah. uh way of putting it. Um. Yeah. I mean, in a way that is what we want from everyone, don't we? Uh, It's harder to measure virtue. It's really difficult to like, it's, it's one thing to come up with a test for like how, like how, like how much, you know, how would you measure like how virtuous you are? Maybe like put the Milgram, put you in the Milgram experiment. And if you're one of the (laughs) one out of 10 people that doesn't go along with it. I'm just curious,
0: has there been any studies or like published ideas on that? So, I mean, maybe that, or. This might be a little bit crass, but even just the percentage of charitable giving on your taxes, like what percentage of your income do you give away? Mm, I don't yeah. even like that, you though, don't dude. like
2: that. No, no, no. There's so many people who are just doing that for publicity and whatnot, you know? Sure. Think yeah. about the rich boys who are just... I'm not saying about those
0: percentage, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know how you test for virtue yeah. beyond, beyond some thought experiment or yeah. an escape room. They don't Internet realize history. there's an escape room. And they, no. Yeah,
1: right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, I agree with you on that. Uh, there's a really good book called um, "The Elephant in the Brain," and they have a whole chapter on charitable giving. And they say uh, they provide, I think, really overwhelming evidence that the majority of charitable giving is motivated by the desire to look good to others, yeah, not yeah. the desire See, to help. And they can hmm, they can yeah. prove it. It sounds it sounds incredibly cynical, but go and read that book, and you'll be like, "Oh crap!" I, believe, right. it. Yeah, <laughs> I, be, I believe it. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, and so <laughs> it, <laughs> and, 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 you know, if we did something like charitable giving, I know you're just like spitballing. If we did yeah, something yeah. Like charitable giving, then people would be like oh, I want more votes. I'll just give more money away. Yeah. So in a way, yeah, of course we want Mm. virtue, but it's, most people aren't very virtuous and it's really hard to measure it, even if they are. Um, Mm -hmm. it's not really clear what actually builds virtue. So in a way, yeah, that's, that might be the even better thing, but I mean, we can barely get knowledge. Uh, so, and that's like such a low bar compared to virtue. Uh, it's Mm -hmm. not clear how we'd ever get that. But of course, like if I had a magic wand and I could wave it and it would make everyone perfectly virtuous, yeah, I'd yeah. wave it. Yeah, but, please. Uh, but I have no idea what any actual thing that, like that would do something like what a magic wand does would be like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, uh, I mean, just people just frankly are just they're not very virtuous. Good, I mean, I, my friend Brian Kaplan has a good way of putting it. I think I think that empirical evidence sort of summarizes it like like goes along with this. It's like 10 percent of people are kind of scoundrels and want to prey upon others 10% of people are brave and will do the right thing even when no one's looking and even when it's unpopular. And the other 80% of people are just kind of conformist. They just go along with everyone else does, which is good in, when you're in like a modern liberal society is good because that means that they they fight racism and they try to make the world more open and inclusive. And those very same people, if they'd been alive in Germany in 1936, would have been hardcore Nazis because that's yeah. what people do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I don't really know how to fix or change that. So I think mm-hmm. we just have to like not worry yeah. about it i guess
0: now what's interesting i'm just kind of connecting some threads here i don't know if you touch on this explicitly in the book but maybe one criticism of the enlightened preference view as opposed to other forms of epistocracy let's just quickly say something about that like one form could be you just straight up need to pass some kind of test about political knowledge and that in order you get, to vote in order to yeah. vote or everyone gets one vote and then you earn extra votes depending on your education level, something like that. But with the enlightened preference view, I hear you saying, and again, there's probably versions of that too, but everyone go could, could go on election day and fill out this, who am I? What do I want? What do I know form? Now, one problem with that, and this is kind of how you end the book is political engagement can make us worse. And so, one—that's one fault what, what, of worse. How worse? In what way? Uh, that you—you, you, well, a lot of ways. You don't you, mean virtue. I mean, I mean. Or you do more. I—I I think I mean more. You become worse morally, even when you're engaged in politics. Yeah, sucks <laughs> for you, Jason. <laughs> He's given yeah. his whole life to it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it, actually, you know, in a way, it, this is a kind of a funny thing about me. I—I'm not into politics. Like you—you you mentioned before oh, right. about. Like okay. the day-to-day politics stuff that people get into. Mm. I, I I really like studying politics the way like a political scientist or philosopher or an economist would study right. it. But mm. I'm not watching the news. I don't like when a, when a presidential candidate gives a speech, I usually don't watch it. And if I do watch it, it doesn't move me. I mm. never put signs. I don't put up bumper stickers or signs. Like mm. I never give money to like po- uh, political parties. I'm in a way very apolitical, mm. uh, which uh You know, I part of it might be what that thing that Dana Mutz was uh, predicting. Like, I can like pass an ideological Turing test and say, this is what Democrats think, this is what Republicans think. And, you know, that predicts that you're just not that hardcore into it. So, yeah, you're right. Um, Maybe, so
0: maybe it started to put a fine pin on the question. I cut you off. Sorry. Does enlighten, does the enlightened preference view where people, a lot of people are still involved, still fall prey to one of the problems you outlined with democracy and that? widespread political engagement makes us worse and and embattles us and makes us civic enemies with each other.
1: Yeah. Um, it might, it's unclear whether people would participate at the same rate in the system. Maybe they'd participate less. Maybe politics would be a little bit combative, less combative because it would be something of a, uh, black box type system. Like you're voting, you're participating in it, but the outcome gets generated by our collective behavior. And Mm -hmm. it's not really like team one versus team two. And that might change Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I don't, part of the point of that system was to say, I don't really think I can fix people's actual level of information or their actual level of virtue. I don't think I can convert hooligans into Vulcans or hobbits Mm. into Vulcans. I think we're stuck with hobbits and hooligans. So it's more of like a, can we get better government despite being stuck with them? And, and actually, you know, this isn't in the book, but if I had to try to reduce the amount of polarization in the United States, the thing that I would actually do wouldn't be this stuff. It would be to put in, um, like some sort of proportional voting system, right? Because a lot of what I think Voltaire had a good idea, way of thinking about this. When you have like one major religion, like one church, and that's it, it just dominates everybody to maintain its power. When you have like two churches, they fight it out. Like it's just Lutherans versus Catholics. They fight it out constantly because you're just on the verge of dominating if you can just crush the other side. Mm -hmm. And when you have 30, as Voltaire says, when he's like looking around like religious conflict in the 1700s, he's like, when you have like 30 people just kind of live and let live because you, you just can't afford to have this. I will never be with anyone other than those. I agree with attitude. And some people do it, but those are a minority. And most people are just like, yeah, I'm just going to accept everybody. And that's fine. Something mm. like that seems to happen with politics where look at one party states. I don't have to say more about that. Right. Look at two party states like the U.S., it's Democrats and Republicans. We just It's just like Lutherans versus Catholics in 1530. We just have to crush the other side and then we win. And then you look at Germany or places that have proportional voting systems, which mathematically lead to there being many, many parties. You don't have a choice but to like make deals and live with and work with people in different mm-hmm. political parties. So you get a much more tolerant and open attitude. Uh, this won't happen. By the way, will this happen in the United States? I think there's almost no chance because the, the fact that, what we have called first past the post voting, whoever gets the most votes wins. Yeah. The mm-hmm. fact that that leads to there being two parties, it's something called Duverger's law. It's well known. The par- the party leaders are aware of this. And because of that, they don't want to advocate voting changes that would lead to there being more parties. So the Republicans and Democrats like look at each other and effectively like, I hate you and you hate me. I wish you were dead and you wish I were dead, but we all, we, we agree at least that we don't want there to be 15 other parties that sometimes win. We want the Mm -hmm. third parties in the U S to be jokes. So let's Mm -hmm. not change our voting system. So it requires like changing this requires like the Democrats and Republicans to act against their self-interest. So I I don't think it's going to happen.
0: Yeah. And it's not really clear that a third party would equally siphon off from both because the typical third parties, maybe libertarian would probably siphon off more Republicans or a green party would siphon off more Democrats. And if that's the case, they're probably not going to get off the ground. Yeah. I don't think. But
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it would just, it would lead to a collapse of the, the two party system. You get so many more other parties who knows what they would look like. Who knows if the main parties we have now would survive. Uh, so I think it's so chaotic for them. They're, they're just never going to go along with it.
0: Well, kind of as we land the plane here and wrap up, um, Maybe to leave our audience with some some glimmers of hope or a forecast of the future. What what's some of your knowledge of the the studies and scholarship that's been done? If we were to go with enlightened preference or when we go to assess what people know, what what do the top ten percent of knowers, the inform informed populace across parties, what are kind of the policy preferences marked in that class of people? Cause that was a surprising um, claim in the book that actually there are some uh, strong majority opinions in that class of knowers, regardless of party affiliation.
1: Yeah, good. Um, so for example, Martin Gillens in the book Affluence and Influence, he just looks at, say, the Democratic Party, and he looks at the differences between the high information and low information people. And mm-hmm. he finds high information people tend to be open, tolerant, they're less militaristic. Um, low information Democrats tend to be against abortion rights, against gay rights, very militaristic and so on. And that pattern actually remains even when you do this enlightened preference stuff where you're eliminating race, you're eliminating the effect of uh, money, you're eliminating Mm -hmm. all of that and all that's left is information. Uh, And the, the funny thing is these studies have been done by lots of different people from different fields using different data sets and they themselves have different background politics. You've got like libertarians and like social Democrats and like moderate Democrats and others doing these studies, but they tend to get pretty f- uniform results, which is that a hypothetical enlightened American public would be much less militaristic, it'd be much more in favor of gay rights. That, that probably doesn't matter as much now because there's been a radical shift in that most mm. Americans are pro gay rights. But 20, 30 years ago, that was like a surprising result. Um, they're more in favor of like prison reform and less police violence. They're more in favor of increasing taxes to offset the deficit than decreasing taxes they favor, have the kind of nuanced views on environmental protection, where it's not just more or less, but rather, let's do things that look like they work and use cost benefit analysis for it. Um, they tend to be strongly in favor of free trade. Um, their views on the welfare state are, again, kind of nuanced, where it's not just more or less, but like, let's have, like, it's more about particular policies that seem to be more effective. Mm-hmm. And what you get is something that kind of cross cuts across party lines. It's like some ideas from libertarians, some ideas from greens, some ideas from Democrats, some ideas from Republicans. Um, And also interestingly tends to more closely match what might be kind of common sense views among economists, but not others. Uh, Which is surprising because it's not like they're just testing. Do you agree with economists? But that's what you tend to find. A hypothetically Hmm. enlightened public starts to think more like a professional economist would and less like a party partisan would. So, um, in a way I, I take the fact that you get a congruence of these results and it coheres with stuff that's independently studied and you're getting it from lots of people, with different backgrounds, different, different studies, different, different beliefs themselves. They're not just trying to prove that they're right as in a way there is wisdom out there in the crowds. And if we could just find a way to get it, we mm-hmm. could do better. You know, well, we don't, we can't fix people, but we can make, fix the system.
0: Yeah. Um, uh... Well, I had one. Now I have one final thought to to close here. Any advice for our listeners? Like maybe they're wondering, okay, what do I do with this new uh, paradigm? I've been given a new discussion topics and ideas. That, mm-hmm. Is there any normative? <laughs> you ought to now go do this? Or like, what's, what's the next step for people if they want to pursue this further and yeah, make I a can. change in some way? What can be yeah. done?
1: Well, I think we could work on ourselves. It's hard to make a big social change, and most of us are in a position to do so, but we can work on ourselves. Like, you know, maybe make politics matter less in your life. Make it less of a test of whether someone's going to be your friend or not. be mm. be more open-minded about like people whom you disagree with might genuinely be good people. Spend less time on mm. Facebook signaling mm. to others how good you are and and spend less time showing like using your intolerance of different political beliefs as evidence of your virtue uh spend less time reading and watching the news and more time just reading the big ideas read econ books and poli books and sociology and stop reading like the day-to-day news uh make if you think about how you're going to contribute you recognize the following like you can do more good i mean this is this is a real thing you can do more good by giving a thousand dollars to say give directly.com or org is dot org then you will do by voting over your entire life. So if you really want to help people, focus on that and stop making politics such a big thing. Politics is like cheap and easy virtue that makes you feel good, but it rarely does much good.
2: Hmm. That's really good. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, what else <laughs> needs to be said?
0: That's great. <laughs> well, thank you for watching another episode of Open to Truth. Again, you can uh, subscribe to the blog, uh, just go to openatruth.com/slash/subscribe. Get Jason's book. Get Jason's book against democracy. I had a blast reading it. As you can tell from the discussion, funny guy it comes across in the uh, book as well. There's humor, and you'll learn a lot. Some little uh, tools to help you think better about politics, but don't get too involved. Just as Jason <laughs> stay said. healthily detached. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next time. Stay curious, guys.